All right, well, let's, uh, let's begin by singing. So let's stand together and sing. <coughs> Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen... How thy desires there have been Granted in what he ordaineth Praise to the Lord Who doth prosper thy work And defend thee Surely his goodness and mercy Here daily attend thee Ponder anew what the Almighty will do if with his love he befriend thee. Praise to the Lord who with marvelous wisdom hath made thee. Deck thee with health and with loving hand, guided and stayed thee. How often grief hath not he brought thee relief, spreading his wings to o'ershade thee. Praise to the Lord, oh, let all that is in me adore him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the Amen sound from his people again. Gladly for ere we adore him. All right, you may be seated. <coughs> all right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your blessings and for creating us. We thank you for this time you've given us to be together. I thank you for each uh, man who's here, uh, married and unmarried, and pray that you would help us uh, who are married to be more complete as husbands, so to truly understand biblical love and to be Christ-like uh, in the way that we love the wife that you have given to us. Help us truly to love in a giving way, in a self-sacrificial way, to crucify selfishness. And we pray that you would bless our discussion here this morning, uh, that we might be more godly and glorify your name uh, and truly be uh, walking examples of grace, walking examples of Christ uh, in our homes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so chapter 5 is the one that we're um, on right now, 
And it's part one of two chapters just on loving your wife. Okay, and the first thing he goes through in the chapter I thought was real helpful is love an emotion. What do you think? Joseph's shaking his head no. Why are you shaking your head? It's not, it involves emotions, but it's not entirely an emotion. Okay. It's, it, it's an action that enfolds our actions, our thoughts, and our emotions. Yeah, yes. And so the primary thing that he kind of emphasizes there is that love is a verb. It's an action word. Okay. Now, the word love can be used as a noun, like we speak of, you know, the love of God. Um, but God's love is manifested in his giving and in his actions towards us. And, of course, what's the great chapter that really gives us the most thorough biblical definition of love? First yeah, First Corinthians 13. And so he kind of goes in, into that. But I wanted to read just kind of the the little anecdote he starts with. I thought it was very helpful. He says, The story is told of a man who sought out his pastor for counsel, and the pastor asked the man, What can I do for you? Pastor, I think I have a problem. What's your problem? Well, I think I love my wife too much. I see. Tell me, do you love her as much as Christ loves the church? No, I don't love her that much. Then your problem is not that you love her too much. Your problem is that you still don't love her enough. The real problem with many men who are in love with their wives is that they think of love as a feeling. As one person put it, love is a feeling that you feel when you feel like you think of love as a feeling. Okay? <clears throat> love is a feeling that you feel when you feel like you're going to get a feeling that you've never felt before. To the extent that love is a feeling, and to a certain extent it is an emotion, <clears throat> it is possible to love someone too much. You can't actually love someone or something to the point of idolizing him or her. Or it. When a man desires and dotes over his wife inordinately to the point of expecting her to do for him those things that only God can do for him, he has, in essence, loved her too much. Biblical love, however, is not primarily a feeling. In fact, such love isn't even primarily an emotion. What part of speech is the word love? Why, love is a noun, of course. No, love is fundamentally a verb. Yes, that's right. Do you remember the classic passage? So let's look at. 1 Corinthians 13 together. <clears throat> so turn your Bibles here. 1 Corinthians 13. Now what's interesting is, while this passage is certainly relevant to marriage and it's relevant to a biblical definition of love, does anyone know what is the context in which this was spoken? What was going on? What's Paul really addressing here? Use of spiritual gifts. Yeah, the use of our spiritual gifts. And so we're not supposed to parade those spiritual gifts in the church and of course in their case um, this is a time when miraculous spiritual gifts were being um, were operating in the church so you had people speaking in tongues speaking out of turn and it was mayhem and chaos but that being said this still is very relevant to everything that we think about love because this is not only love the way we're supposed to apply it to our gifts but to every relationship we have in life so let's look at uh, first corinthians 13 with someone Please read loudly verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, you don't have love and profit from nothing. Okay. All right. Will someone read verse 4 nice and loud? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. 
Okay, so someone read verse 5? Does or, not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a, a wrong suffered. Okay, and then verse 6. Anyone? <laughs> does not, not rejoice. Go ahead. <laughs> at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, and then verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, so let's let's think about, as we just heard from God, here's what biblical love is. Contrast that with a, a worldly or ungodly definition of love. How does the ungodly world define love? Makes me happy. Whatever makes me happy, sure. Mm-hmm. What else? Am I? I mean, have you heard men? I mean, you've heard <clears throat> men say, I've heard men say, I don't love her anymore. I, I, fell, I fell out of love with her. What are they talking about? Kind of what you were just saying, or what else do they mean by that? What's the feeling? Yeah, the feeling, the, the exhilaration of, you know, remember, remember when you first, like, really just loved that woman that you're married to, like, the way that feels? I mean, that's, a, that's an intoxicating feeling, okay? And as anyone noticed, it's not always there now, right? Okay, but the world will look at that one. Well, I fell out of love. I don't, why would I want to be married to someone I don't love anymore? Okay? That's an ungodly definition of love. It's that, that exhilarating feeling that you, you once had. But, some, some love to the world is something that happens to you. Yeah. You You're the passive object of it. it kind of like, it's like Cupid's arrow that you get shot with and you didn't see it coming, right? Yeah, I fell, fell in love with, with someone. Okay? And yet, what, what is this passage all about? What is it really? What is the message here? That's being said here. It's all about the other person. Yeah. It's not about me and how I feel. Exactly. Bingo. Okay. Look, look at it. Look at verse four. Love suffers long and is kind. It's not talking about suffering long and being kind to yourself. Right? It's, it's all about the, the object that that love is being put upon. It's, it's all about them. Okay. So that's the, the, the main contrast. The worldly definition of love really is self-centered. It really is all about... Me, my happiness, the way I feel, where biblical love is about the object that's being loved. Not the way I feel, but the way that they are treated by me. Okay, so that's one of the key things to, to bear in mind there. Okay, so look at some of these other things. So love is patient or suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Can we be envious of our wives or be competitive with them? Sure, sure. Love does not parade itself. Okay, it's not puffed up. We don't try to outdo her or um, correct her in a, in a condescending way or anything like that. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. I think that's one of the major contrasts with worldly love because I've been asked before um, by people, would you, would you attend a gay wedding? And what do you think? What, what should we say to that? No. no. Well, don't you want to be loving towards your friend? Don't you want to try to win them to Christ? And it, it, that's not very loving. But what does the next thing say? What does the opening line of verse six say? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Yeah, it, we can't rejoice in iniquity. There's nothing for me to rejoice in at something at someone's sin like that. So, is it loving to be supportive of people in their sin and rebellion? It's not. 
go and sit and cry, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> you could go and sit and cry, yeah. When they say speak now, you stand up. Yeah, speak now or forever hold your peace. Yeah, you could do that. Okay. You're really condemning them to hell by loving them and supporting them yep. and who they love or whatever the crap they say. Yeah. Uh, and by supporting them in their sin, you're condemning them to hell. Yeah. Oh. Isn't that amazing? Like, the, the antithesis between the world's definition and, and God's definition of what love is are op- opposite to that level. Like, what the world calls love, really, biblically speaking, would be hatred. Okay? Like, telling people, you're lost without Christ, and in point of fact, you're going to go to hell forever. You're going to be in conscious agony. Uh, I'm trying to spare you an eternity of pain. That's seen as being bigoted and hateful. But biblically, that's the most loving thing you can tell someone. <clears throat> so it's real important. This, this contrast is not a subtle difference in definition. They're really opposites of one another. They really are. Okay? All right. Um, verse 6 there, and then it goes on. But rejoices in the truth. That's what biblical love does. Biblical love rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How would you apply that part of biblical love to your marriage? It believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. What does that look like in our marriage relationship? Kind of believe the best about somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not, not assume they're wrong, wrong and you're right. Yeah. Their motives. Mm-hmm. Like. I know you guys, this is a Reformed church, so we know our catechism, right? Um, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification. Okay, if we really do believe, I mean, can men pigeonhole their wife? You're always going to be that way. Is if we really believe in sanctification, though, is that true? She'll always be this way. She'll never get more holy or more go- more godly. That's not true. Okay, and we hope people don't pigeonhole us either. And think, well, he's just always going to be like this. And he's always been this way. You always this, always that. If we really believe that the Holy Spirit is in someone and is working through the preaching of the word, they're going to change. Okay? So love, biblical love that believes God's word, believes all things and hopes all things, endures all things. There's always hope that things can be better. Things can get different. I think sometimes people pigeonhole themselves, too, and just use that as an excuse to say, like, that's just how I am. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that many times um, doing, you know, marriage counseling through the, you know, many years, and it's just, it's just the way I am, and it's like, God is sanctifying you, but also, you can't use that as an excuse for sin, because a lot of times, I, I have told guys, well, I'm, that's just the way I am, yet, well, the way you are stinks, <laughs> and you gotta change it, because you're not doing right, and, or she says it, or, I've thought the same thing, it's just the way I am, that I have certain tendencies, or, they're not going to change, but we can't think that of ourselves either. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the rest of that passage, we'll look at some more of that here in a little bit. But let's look at a few other texts of Scripture. Um, look at Ephesians chapter 5. So obviously the, one of the great passages to the right there in your Bible, just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, four passages that we're going to look at here real quick together, read together. And then I want you to see if you notice a theme in each one of these four passages that is, is clearly a theme. Will someone read Ephesians 5, verse 2? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
Excellent. Okay, verse 25. Someone read verse 25 of that chapter. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay. And then I'll read the next one, which is John three sixteen, which most of us know from memory anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then one more passage there, turn to the left uh, from Ephesians to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Here again, just looking at a, a, a consistent theme of biblical love here. Will someone read verse 20 there? So what's the theme? What's the consistent theme in all four of those passages? Selflessness. Selflessness. Giving. Giving. Okay, those two things. Those are the main things that you see in those passages. So biblical love for our wife, when we're told to love as Christ loves the church, is selfless giving to the woman that we're married to. That's what we're called upon to do. Okay, now the next thing Priolo does is he kind of says, okay, great. So all I got to do is give. All I got to do is give. Um... But then he points out that we often give with what? Selfishness, okay, or wrong motives, okay? That's often what motivates our giving. I mean, how many times have you guys been like, I'm going to be a better husband, I'm going to do better now? And so you start, like, really, I mean, really rationing up the game here. Like, you're cleaning stuff up, and you're, you're trying to figure out things that she wants done. But then her reaction is not quite what you were hoping it would be. And that kind of throws a damper on it. Have you ever felt convicted that really my motive for doing this really wasn't just for the glory of God? Okay. So Priolo really hammers that point. And that's why this book is so convicting is Christ, Christ-likeness just gives for the glory of God, gives to, for that sole purpose, not for the, in the interest of self or anything like that. But that's what makes it so um, convicting. So we can give everything and still be nothing. Remember what 1 Corinthians 13 says, even if I give all my goods to the poor and give my body to be burned, but I have not love, I am nothing. So you can be the best giver there is in that way and still be nothing if the motivation is not uh, simply the glory of God and to be Christ-like. Okay, so there are a lot of people that give. A lot of people are very generous in their giving and give in a sinful way. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Can we do that in our marriages? Yep, she's doing great lately. I'll be real warm and affectionate and excited to see her. But are we warm, affectionate, consistently excited to see her and showering her with with affection and love that we know she needs, even if she's not doing well by us lately or is neglecting us lately? Okay, that's 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 what makes the bar so high and so difficult. He says, Jesus says, and if you greet only your brethren... What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. So Jesus condemned hypocritical giving. And brothers, we can do that in our marriages. Thinking that we're, I'm giving because John 3.16 says, God in this way loved the world that he gave. And Christ gave his life. And 
I can give to my wife with a bad motive. I can give to her with a bad motive. Matthew 6, 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, when you love your wife, when you get her her favorite flowers or her favorite food or you plant something you know she loves, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. I mean, sometimes we give wanting glory from her, wanting her to praise us to other people or something like that. We talk about what a, what a singular privilege it is to be married to such a catch, right? Okay, and that's just sinful and wrong. That cannot be the reason that we do this. It can't be. Okay, so reading through this, this, this book's like a, a bunch of daggers to the soul, man. It really is. Um, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They have their reward already, says Jesus. Jesus always said, what you do, your good deeds, you do them in secret, so that God, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. <clears throat> so it actually should make us even more excited if she's ungrateful, right? And shows us no gratitude at all. And I'm really going to get a reward from God, right? Okay. So can godly Christian husbands give to their wife, not so much to be seen by men, but just to be seen by her? Or to get something in return from her? And Priola wrote this hammer blow of a sentence. He says, real love does not need to be requited in order to keep on loving. So that's a, that's a real challenge to us there. So true love just gives without selfish motives. And so uh, do we just give her anything and everything she desires, though? Should we give her any, everything she wants? No, we don't do that either. <clears throat> Priola wrote this great paragraph. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> We have been told over and over again that our two basic needs are security and significance and that we have a need for unconditional love and acceptance, a need for positive self-esteem, and a need to love ourselves before we can truly love God and others. These needs are simply not identified as such in the Bible. What Martha wanted, you will remember, was for her sister to help her. What she needed was to sit at the feet of Christ and hear his word. And here he makes a really important distinction between giving her everything she wants. And there's times that we should give them what they want. If there's things that they, they want and desire, we should go buy them. Or if we can, we should give her what she wants. But the main purpose we have in our marriage is to give her what she needs. Priola said, I believe it is much more biblically accurate to say that man's two greatest needs are not for security and significance, but rather to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And think about that passage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order that he would what? Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Okay, Her, her godliness, that's the main concern that we have. And Priolo says, beyond these, man has other valid needs, such as counsel from God through his word, food, shelter, etc., here, then, is our new working definition of love. Love is giving others what they need without the primary motive of getting some temporal reward. And that's a good, good biblical definition. Love is giving others what they need without the primary motive of getting some temporal reward. And the thing is, our wife does need our affection. And she does need to be built up with our words. And she does need to know that she's our priority and that we, we love and adore her and think she's beautiful. She does need that. And then Priolo says, love in the context of marriage is giving to your wife that which the Bible says she needs without having some temporal reward as your primary motive. Of course, as we will see later, you may also give her what she wants when that is biblically appropriate. Okay, so that, that's one of the main things I wanted you to, to take away from this too is, yeah, give, 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 but it's easy for us to think, well, okay, well, that just means give her everything she wants. When really we're called to give her what we know she needs, and that is to know God better and to, um, to love God and to love neighbor. 
Okay, so we've talked a little bit more also about uh, selfishness. Uh, Priolo says the root cause of all marriage problems, all of them, is selfishness. Do you agree with that? And if so, why? Cite examples. What do you think? How is that? Selfishness or idolatry, those things really go hand in hand. How is that the root of all marriage problems? It's most of sin also roots from pride. Mm-hmm. Sure. Of all sin. So, yeah. It's going to cause problems. So, self-idolatry, idolatry, and selfishness. Yeah. Focusing on self. Yeah. And not on our desires and not mm-hmm. others' needs. Yep. Has anyone ever here, anyone here ever seen the, uh, the Paul Tripp series called uh, What Did You Expect About Marriage? It's really good. Remember that scene? It's really annoying at the beginning where he stands there and says, here's the real problem with marriage. And he stands there and says the phrase, I want for like five straight minutes. And it's like, stop, you know, but that's the problem. He said, that's really the issue. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. He probably says it 300 times. And that's our issue is my, my desires aren't, aren't being met. And that's like, that's like my sinful priorities is that rather than getting married is about, laying that aside for this person. You know, I always share with um, the, those of you that have done your pre-marriage counseling and your weddings, the story about B.B. Warfield's wife. Remember that whole story? Warfield's wife was struck by lightning on their honeymoon. And she was an invalid for the rest of their married life. They never had children. And she was not able really to function. And he had to stay home and take care of her. And that's kind of, he just worked from home as a professor. But that's what he did. He just took care of his, his hurt and sick wife. But what an opportunity there to discover what was the real motive here. Is it to take care of this individual? Is it to love them no matter what, even if they get very sick or if they, an issue happens? Or what if they become mentally disabled? What if they, they lose their mind? You know, the commitment we make is until death separates us and you're going to love this person, take care of them no matter what happens. Remember those vows, those traditional vows, sickness and in health and everything else? Okay. And because that's the way Jesus, the Lord Jesus loves his church is in that same, that very same way. Okay. So that is the most intense selfless task that we have in this side of eternity is loving our wife like that. Okay. So selfishness is really the root cause and generates all the other sins. And Priolo said this. Your heart is like a two-sided coin. On one side, the coin reads selfishness. On the other side, the coin reads lack of love for God and neighbor, which is our greatest sin of omission. Okay, so that's the thing we've got to remember. Unfortunately, we both bring that kind of a heart into our marriage relationships. If we're redeemed and we know Christ, God is at work at sanctifying us. But that's why we have to have Bible studies on this topic. Because we're not, we're not as good at this stuff as we should be yet. Okay? When Jesus redeems, effectually calls, justifies, and adopts someone, their entire sanctification process has as its ultimate goal them learning how to love God and to love their neighbor better. And this is the summary of all that God requires of us. So I wanted to ask you guys, how does marriage help men become more sanctified in loving God and neighbor? So that really is the purpose of marriage, is to make us more like Christ. How does it do that? How does marriage make us more like Christ? It gives us a very close neighbor. 
<laughs> yeah. Even when the church backslides, the church grows cold in its worship and its affection, its attachment to him, he does not waver. So we got to be rock solid that we're going to still love regardless. How, how else? We have constant opportunities to <clears throat> practice and to fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're just not with anybody else as much, all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're dating, you can do the whole thing where you yourself up all pretty be all nice all the time because you only spend time for a certain amount of hours in the day. But at your worst, at your most tired and most hungry and whatever situations, most stressed situations are always going to be there. And those aren't, those situations aren't you not being yourself. Those situations are you being you exposed as you. <laughs> so I can't say it's just not, I'm just not myself today. You know, this is just showing who you are. Yeah, it's you're you're seeing the true me and all my shameful in, in glory, right? Okay. What do you think about Neil? I can see the wheels turning. I'm trying to pose it in more of a pose it in words. Um, how we behave or misbehave really affects. Wheel goes flat on riding lawnmower. I finally notice it when the wheel falls off. <laughs> and I take my hearing protection and throw it on the ground. Patricia saw it. <laughs> and that disturbs her. Yeah. I have a fit of anger because that affects her. Um, she didn't yeah. see me, okay, do something constructive this, but first react and just <clears throat> and anger towards myself, but I don't know if anybody else is tempted to this. You think there's something, you're tempted to think there's something good about being angry with yourself. <laughs> that really hurts our lives. Yeah. yeah. Because we're one flesh with them. Yeah. And for me to just show anger towards myself isn't nearly as humble as I can make it out to be. <laughs> yeah, isn't would, would, Neil? Do you think excessive self anger is is kind of an altered form of pride? Yeah. Yeah. Pity. Be- because self pity. I'm not finding my sufficiency in Christ. Yeah. I'm wanting a good measure of it in myself. Mm. Do lawnmowers sanctify everyone that much? <laughs> I'm like thinking of a lot of lawnmower incidences. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're a source of, of sanctification. They're also a source of joy, too. Um, but the lawnmower that, that came with the house we bought like 10 years ago, they just like left it there and it was a riding mower. And the last day that I cut my lawn, like the second year, it was, this was an old lawnmower. Right as I finished up the final swipe, the engine exploded. 
and it was just dead. And I was like, just put it up and just took it to the dump. But I was like, thanks. I was like, that was like perfectly timed. Like, <laughs> so they bring out the best and the worst in you, lawnmowers. But, but yeah, your sin is going to affect someone now um, in a way that it's never affected anybody. So the opportunity to forgive and to see yourself the way you really are is going to be uh, very much shown in, in your marriage relationship. Um, okay, another another topic here uh, that Priolo hits uh, in this chapter. He says the uh, the husband is the initiator, just like Jesus, and we've talked about this before. But the wife responds just like the church. And then he he made a point that I had either forgotten or had had not heard. Ephesians five twenty five uses that the word agape that we we are to love our wife our wife in that self giving Christ like uh, self sacrificial love, but Scripture actually does not say that the wife is to love her husband using the same verb. It actually uses um, the word philandrus, which refers more to affection. Now, obviously, they're supposed to to love us, but the love we have for them is supposed to be the initiating point that they respond to. Okay, and so often it's it's the, the wife who's trying to kick her husband in the, the pants to get him to lead or get him to do this or that. But we've got to be the ones that are rock solid in our devotion, rock solid in our conviction, rock solid in making sure we do family worship every day, rock solid in loving her regardless, being in a good mood, regardless of what's going on at, at work or financially or, or anything else. So she responds to that leadership. Okay. So one thing I wanted to ask is, Guys, there's a lot of women today inside and outside the church who really, really hate men in general. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Like, if you're a man, they just hate you. A lot of bad men out there. Okay. They've had a lot of bad experiences with men. How, how so? Like, what are some of those experiences that have caused that? Now, obviously, it's sinful on their part, but I'm talking about how maybe we've contributed to some of that animosity. Unfaithfulness. Sure. Um, violence. Violence, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Men not being men. Mm-hmm. Taking, taking the lead on... Yep. Feminized. A lot of people grow up without fathers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, sure. Abusing their position, abusing their, their size, their you know, strength, things like that. So a lot of women have been let down by the men in their lives that were supposed to you know, show them affection and attention and kindness and everything else. And so it's amazing to me, the more I reflect on stuff like this and read this book and just think about, you know, I've preached a lot of sermons on manhood and how much depends on us, how much depends on our intimacy with the Lord, how much depends on our ability to be self-controlled, our, our ability to handle stress uh, that comes up in, in the household or in our family, our ability to handle all that, it just affects so many people, especially her. And she's the one looking to us for stability, someone who's going to be uh, consistently kind. You know, my, my brother-in-law, who was like the older brother I never had, he actually lived with us for a while before he married my sister. He was the best man at my wedding. And he like gave me the best marriage advice I've ever gotten. I, before I got married, he's like, Patrick, at the end of the day, all your wife really wants is for someone to be nice to them and make them feel important. Like, if you consistently are nice and make her feel important, everything will be, will be great. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that.
Okay, um, Priola says here, keep in mind that God made man to be the initiator and woman to be the responder. Remember also that you are commanded to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Who took the initiative in that relationship? Was the church of Jesus Christ pleading with Christ for thousands of years to be his bride? As if to say, oh Lord Jesus, I love you so much, please come and love me. No, Christ initiated the love and the church responds. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19, John 15, 16. Even though your wife is not commanded to love you in the same way that you are to love her, if she loves God, it will be difficult for her not to warmly respond to your love when you increasingly love her as Christ loved the church. Okay? Now, the final thing I want to talk about, and I don't want this to take too long, but before we get into a couple of little groups here and go through some of those questions, <clears throat> Priolo makes the point that the greatest opportunity for us to become more Christ-like and to be Christ-like is when she sins. Okay? And he says, um, how do we respond to our wife when she sins? Is it in a biblical, self-sacrificial, self-giving, loving manner with kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness or with impatience, anger, and bitterness? And then his last thing is uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrongs and love covers a multitude of sins. Do we love her like Christ loves the church when she sins against us? So that's not actually, that's kind of a rhetorical question I'm not asking you to answer. No. <laughs> 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 I was like, when I was nominated to be an elder years ago, I had to go through the qualifications with Amy, and she was in the other room working on something, and I kept, do I, am I like this? And her answer was always the same, sometimes. What about this? Sometimes. I'm like, wow. Okay. I guess that's better than never. <laughs> okay, just a great passage. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there, there it is. There's the greatest opportunity for us to be Christ-like is when she is as unlovable uh, and unattractive as, as she could be to us. In those moments, there's our greatest um, opportunity to be sanctified and to be like Christ. So to be the best and most godly, Christ-glorifying husbands we can be, we need to study the ways that Jesus loves his church. And the, the sad part is, of course, for us, Jesus never, ever lets his church down. He does not ever sin against her at all. We who are supposed to love our wife like Jesus will sin a lot and let her down a lot. But this is where we have to stand and fight against our own sinful selfishness and labor to crucify that sin and be more like Jesus. And that's what biblical manhood in marriage is all about. And then the last thing I'll read, um, Priola wrote this. Dr. Wayne Mack, in his excellent workbook of Bible studies for couples, Strengthening Your Marriage, gives additional insight into this passage. Normally a man uses a lot of time and gives a great deal of thought, effort, and money to take care of himself. His needs, his desires, his aspirations, his hopes, his body, his comfort are very important to him. He nourishes and cherishes himself. He carefully protects and provides for the needs of his body. He does not deliberately do that which brings harm to himself. When he's hungry, he eats. When he's thirsty, he drinks. When he's tired, he sleeps. When he's in pain, he goes to the doctor. When he cuts himself, he washes the wound and binds it up. When he sees an object coming toward him, he puts, uh, his hand, puts up his hands for protection. He very naturally and carefully and fervently nourishes and cherishes himself. 
These are the kinds of things you must do for your wife since she is now bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, like you said, Neil. We, we get angry and throw something down on the ground, which I, I've done and Amy has seen that. Um, that's not just being angry at me. It's, it's angry at us as a, a unit before God, as that one flesh unit that affects her. And that's another thing. You have to really, we have to really get that into our mind. When we sin at all, it's not just to our own detriment. It's to hers now. Okay? All right. I'll, I'll close with some prayer, and then uh, hopefully you'll have a handout, and then we'll, we'll divide um, from Chris and Isaiah over, and then this group over here. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for this time you've given us in your word, and <clears throat> we thank you for the freeness of your loving grace to your church uh, that we're part of. And we pray you'd help us to do better as, as husbands um, and to be less selfish and to labor every day to get closer and closer to you in communion with you in prayer and, and studying your word and allowing it to shape and form our thoughts and to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And we pray that uh, our wives truly would be loved as much as our sinful frailty allows, but that they would truly be loved like Jesus loves the church, and we pray you would bless us and help us to that end now in Jesus' name. Amen.